Stuff Podcasts. A warning, this podcast contains references to subjects and discussions that could be hard for some people to hear, so please take care when you're listening. It's an incredibly tough profession on women. This is 20, 25 years ago, so, you know, it started like that, and it's only now that I'm, you know, I've been in, in the practice for a while that I'm able to talk about gender imbalance and gender differences in court. You know, I have that luxury because I've been doing the job for so long. Queenie, Queenie, don't drop the ball. Queenie, Queenie, don't drop the ball. Queenie, Queenie, don't drop the ball. Down come baby, cradling on. Welcome to Tell Me About It, the podcast where we're trying our best to normalise crying at work this week. I'm Noelle McCarthy. I'm Michelle Duff. I'm Kirsty Johnston. Michelle, you're not just crying at work this week. You are probably crying at home, crying in the car, crying everywhere because you're moving house, aren't you? I am. There are boxes everywhere, but I tell you what's stressing me out the most is my coffee machine. I just... I, <laughs> don't know how to transport it and I'm terrified of it being broken. Didn't you only buy that very expensive coffee machine because you lived in Fielding? Like, do you have to sell it now that you're moving to the booming metropolis of Wellington? (laughs) I will never sell it. How much did it cost? Did it cost more than like a car? It definitely cost more than a car in like 1996. Um, Yeah, it was a lot. But you know what? We worked it out. It's already paid itself off. Uh, That's my husband's rationale about our bloody Tesla that it'll pay itself off in like six years or something boring about petrol. Blah, blah, blah. Leaving aside the fact that you're a recent convert to electric cars, Kirsty, which I think is a whole other podcast. I am familiar with this fallacy of cost per wear. I have, or, or per cup or per drive, I have used this as a way to enable myself to buy whatever I wanted, really, mostly boots for the last few years. So don't tell me about all of that. I know, but <laughs> let's move on. Our topic today is crying at work, actually. That's what we're going to be talking about. Wait, hang on. Before we get on to that, I just wanted to share an email that we got. It's um, probably, I reckon, like the second best piece of feedback that we've ever had. And it said... um, Hang on, hang on. The second best piece of feedback we've ever had. What's the best piece of feedback we ever had? Oh, it was definitely that guy who said um, when we like launched, he was like, I can't wait to ignore this podcast. <laughs> I remember him. That was on Twitter, wasn't it? I love it. He was so enthusiastic about ignoring us. He just had to let us know that, you know, it was what yeah. he was really aiming towards. Well, hey, and anyone else who wants to contact us can email tellmealtiroa at gmail. Anyway, so what this person said was, I know this is like a bit of a pat on the back, but I'm going to read it out anyway. She was like, I listened to your guys' podcast today and I love it. Thank you so much for opening up a safe space for women to share their stories and be heard. Aww. I love that. I'm not even going to be, like, I'm not even going to try to be funny about that. I just love that. That's what we've been wanting to do. So, yeah, I'm glad that that's happening. So let's get back to this week. Uh, We also asked specifically for your crying at work stories on our Tell Me About It Instagram, which is at Tell Me About It NZ, by the way. And we got heaps. Um, One woman said that at a former horrible workplace, her friend kept setting powder in her desk so she could cry but keep her makeup flawless. Oh, man. 
imagine you've got the makeup bag full because you know you're going to be crying. That's so depressing. Yeah. And, you know, the the waterproof mascara as well. That's always a goodie. Uh, we have another <laughs> listener who said she had to photograph. She's a wedding photographer and she had to photograph a wedding day after being horrifically dumped by her partner of two years. So she got through the day by, I don't know, just robotically, and then she burst into tears the minute she got into the car. Oh my God, going through personal stuff at work is the actual worst. It's like, how do you work interfere in my life? And imagine being at a wedding, you'd just be like, cool, great. I love being surrounded by people who love each other right now. I'm so glad to be at the celebration of love while I feel like that. I reckon one of the things someone said to me in um, my DMs when we posted this was that we, re- we really need a rebrand of bathrooms in workplaces as the crying rooms. <laughs> Somebody was mm-hmm. saying, I think just call it what it is, right? Just put the sign up so everybody knows where they're headed to. Somebody had said. Somebody else said to me, um, "The last time I cried at work was last Friday, when I was gaslit by my manager. That was a listener from the public sector. Love that for her. We have our deepest sympathies. That's always happening in the public sector, surely. I'm miserable, isn't it? <laughs> I'm so sad to hear that. Somebody else said, um, "I cried, and the reason it was only two words: marketing department. That's all she <laughs> said." That's all she put. I also think in there you could put <sighs> HR department. Like, oh, there's a few, isn't there? And yeah. look, much love, much love, much love to all of our listeners who work in marketing and in human resources. Because we know there's some wonderful people doing that, Mahi. Okay, well. yeah. Well, nice I save, nice save. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Turn it around. <laughs> to get things back on track, um, the last time I cried at work was actually to do with the guest that we have on today, who is a defence lawyer called Elizabeth Hall. What did she do? No, 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 no. What did you do, Kirsty? I don't victim blame. <laughs> no, it wasn't actually her fault. It was just um, the story that I was working on with her at the time. That was the, was that the Mrs. P's story? Yeah, and um, I'm going to link to that article in the show notes so you can read more about it because it's um, an incredible story and it's quite complex. What I remember in a nutshell, Mrs. P was abused by her husband, but when she said that in court she was accused of lying and then prosecuted? Yeah, and then she spent five years trying to clear her name by getting that prosecution overturned. So um, that was like quite far down the track. The first time I noticed her um, and I really wanted to tell her full story was when I saw like a short article in another newspaper saying, just a little article saying that she refused to stand up for a judge like as a protest, um, saying that she had been abused and she hadn't been, been believed by the family court, which was like the kind of broader issue that I was looking into at the time. Hang on though, Christy. What, what do you mean she refused to stand up for the judge? What do you mean? Like, do you have to stand up when the judge turns up? Yeah, it's you have to stand up when the judge comes in. It's part of the theatre of court. You um, can really tell I'm the one of the three of us who's like never been into a yeah, court in her life and like, is not a working journalist. Eh? I was just like silent, like how does Noel not know that? <laughs> so what? Like the judge comes in and you all have to stand up. Yeah, I think. Do we have to? Do you have to bow, or am I just thinking, imagining no. it? No, some of the them do. Don't. Yeah, the lawyers do. We don't. The media don't have to bow, but you have to stand up and you know. You can't be checking your phone and stuff. Right. So what happened? What happened to Mrs. P when she didn't stand up, Christy? So she got 
arrested and taken down to the cells, like below the court or across the road or wherever it is, and she was fined um, for refusing to stand up. And that's what caught my attention. I was like, who is this badass woman taking on, like, what I knew already by then, this kind of punitive and massively unfair system? And I was just like, surely there's more to this story. Um, And I kind of tried to get in touch with her and that's what started this kind of two-year conversation with her about how we could tell the whole truth of what had happened to her Um, and amid that is how I met Elizabeth Hall because Liz was Mrs P's criminal lawyer. And did Liz help you? Yeah, she did. So um, the way that lawyers work is that they have to ask their client permission to help, um, which she did and then I think she also was incensed about what had happened to Mrs P. Um, So she kind of pointed me towards some of the information I would need, um, which was like buried in court audio from one of the trials. Um, And once we eventually got that, it meant we could tell the story definitively. And that was that she wasn't lying, right? Like even though she had evidence of the abuse, the court had refused to acknowledge that she was a victim. Yeah, and so she was prosecuted for perjury and then she did a year on home detention um, and lost her job as a teacher as well as, like, lost her property in the family court hearing as well. Um, And, yeah, turns out she was telling the truth the entire time. Whoa. I remember reading this story when it came out. I mean, I think... Everyone who read it was just absolutely gobsmacked by the by the way that story played out, Kirsty. And, you know, it was a long story for you to work on, wasn't it? You worked on it for a long time and it sounded from what you said at the time like it was really difficult for you to work on. It was actually, Noel, um, because Mrs. P had been treated so badly and this was kind of her one chance to tell her story. There was a lot riding on it for her um, and also journalistically what we were trying to show what we were showing was really unusual in the New Zealand context we were showing that a judge had effectively you know bullied an abuse victim um, and had done so in what lots of people thought was a um, a gendered way and like that's not just me saying that there was a Supreme Court judge who who called um, the judge out later I think he said it was something like bullying excessive partisan and demeaning um it was really extraordinary you can feel how frustrating it must have been to look at all of that was that what tipped you over the edge was that why you were crying about it yeah it was really frustrating um yeah there was one point where I'd written the whole story and then Mrs P said she just didn't want to do it anymore she was like quite unhappy with the way I'd written some of it and um I was just watching all this work kind of slip away and I felt I don't know I just thought I I have to tell the story I really wanted to tell it but I couldn't and I think I I think I rang Michelle in the middle of it just like sobbing like what am I gonna do you always ring Michelle there's always a moment about 11 minutes into this podcast where Kirsty Johnston says I rang Michelle it's because I'm it's because I'm so wise and I give such sage advice you're literally the only other person who would listen to me. Like, <laughs> yeah. Why was she crying, Michelle? What was what was that phone call like? Oh, she's such a suck. No, it was, <laughs> it was two things. I think it was two things, actually. It was, I could, yeah, one was that she'd worked incredibly hard on the story and had invested a lot of time and a lot of herself and her energy in, in trying to tell it. And it was just taking a long time to get over the line. And, you know, potentially it wasn't going to. 
which sometimes happens, but it's, you know, still really not like can be devastating when it does. And then the other thing is that, you know, we all exist within the same society and within the same system. So it's just really frustrating and makes you feel powerless, you know, probably like Mrs. P felt powerless in that really sort of hierarchical, you know, court system. The story is that, you know, really made me see that system differently. It was honestly like I'd had some kind of rose-tinted glasses on, which is weird because I'm like an extremely cynical journalist. Um, but then this story was the thing that kind of pulled away that view and it just made me realise like the extreme power that the courts can have over people's lives and that it can be unfair. Like that obviously there's like bias in that system, which our guest... Elizabeth got to hear about in real time. I kept calling her being like, Elizabeth. Like everyone was like me learning in real time. I was like, is this for real? Does this, is this, this is weird or like does that happen? And she was like, yes, you know, it's law. It's one of the oldest systems in the world and it's like hierarchical and patriarchal. What did you think it was going to be like? And she works within the system as well, eh? That's right. And she's worked in it for a long time. And so we talked to Liz Hall, who is, as you say, a very experienced defence lawyer and who defended Mrs P. And in this um, clip from our interview, she's talking about something we were particularly interested in, which is how she handles her emotions professionally. So you're working in this super adversarial system. You've got incredibly demanding conditions. You're, you're, you're always on. And the interesting thing to listen out for in this, we think, is how Elizabeth Hall's thinking on how women expressing our emotions at work has evolved over time. So this is Liz Hall. And we start off, I think it's your question, Michelle. Yeah. And it was such a simple question that you asked. You just said, what is it like being a woman in court? I think that for a long time, you know, I've, I've tracked my thought about the tracking of my, um, you know, career in law and my views about myself as a feminist, which, um, you know, I'm a art and uh, bra-burning, screeching feminist. Yes. Um, yes. Oh, yeah. well, but I think when I started in law, I was very much um, denying that there was any gender inequality and that if you um, didn't get the result that you wanted or it didn't go your way, that it was a personal failing of yours. It had nothing to do with gender. And if you pulled the gender card, that was a weakness of yours and that was a weakness that, you know, you were sort of crying foul when it just actually you needed to self-reflect and you know do better <laughs> next time. It's an incredibly tough profession on women. This is 20, 25 years ago. So, you know, it started like that. And it's only now that I'm you know, I've been in, in the practice for a while that I'm able to talk about gender imbalance and gender differences in court. You know, I have that luxury because I've been doing the job for so long and I don't care what people think about me. So that gives me a freedom to talk about it. But there is absolutely a difference. I think there's a difference in way, you know, when I uh, defend people who have killed children, um, who uh, have abused children, who have committed rape, you know, there is that overlay, not just that old question of, you know, how can you defend someone? But as a woman, how could you do that? There is that, you know, pressure. But I mean, I, I don't internalize it because I understand the importance of, you know, 
a commitment to the work that we do. But, you know, absolutely people, I think, have a judgment about women who um, do defense work. And I think as well, like we talk about, you know, women being angry or women um, being identifying too closely with their clients and, you know, women getting upset or being hysterical about a result or being too emotionally attached. You know, those aren't criticisms that are made of men, right? Mm. And, you know, there's a story that I know is, has been told and, um, you know, it was a woman that I was acting for who had been wrongly, wrongfully convicted of murder, had been in prison for five years. I had the conviction quashed um, with Robert Lithgow QC in the Supreme Court and went back to retrial. And she was prosecuted not for murder but for manslaughter. And so she'd been in custody for five years. We went to trial and she was acquitted at the trial. And she stood up and she walked from the dock as a prisoner, and she walked out of the court as a free woman. And as she walked past me, she hugged me. Now, displaying affection in court, you know, it sent, you know, for, for men in that room and for, you know, older practitioners or people who've been around a long time, that was deeply inappropriate, deeply inappropriate that I stood up and that woman and I hugged in court in front of the judge, in front of the jury. But, you know, wild horses wouldn't have stopped me doing that again. You know, and it's still, for me, one of the most moving, um, you know, moments of my career to be able to to be with her in that moment. So, you know, I think there are differences about how women are viewed and I think how about how women's emotions are viewed. But men are just as committed and feel it just as deeply. They might, you know, show it in different ways. Um, but women, I think, are judged by the way that we we respond and we react in a professional space. Mm. Particularly law, right? It's like basically the, the court. Yeah. yeah, it's like the definition of like a patriarchal system. Like it's just... Well, there's here to just, it too, isn't there? Yeah. You know? Oh, that's right. I mean, do yeah. you go to work and bow before you start talking? <laughs> do you wear a gown and call each other mom? Yeah, I know. That's right. I mean, and I have to say, I probably get struck off for this, but one of the <laughs> best... The this is the time to yeah. One of the best things about the use of Tadeo in court, in in English, when you say, you know when you announce your appearance, you say, may it please the court, counsel's name is Miss Hall and I appear for so-and-so. In Tadeo, it's not. You know, I say, tēnā koe e te kaiwhakawā. No, good morning, judge. I'm Miss Hall. You know, it's... And so... I just, it's a simple, it's a simple shift. And I'm sure that sometimes when I appear in court, it does not please the judge. So, it's <laughs> her again. That's right. So it's, you know, and it's just a, you know, and the fact that, you know, judges sit up on a pedestal, you know, at a height above everybody else, the defendant is in a caged box. There's a whole rethink that needs to happen about the physical space of courtrooms, about and what the messages that it sends about who sits where, this idea that the Crown prosecutors sit at the front bench, like they're closer to God in some way, <laughs> that, you know, and they'll say, oh, it's because we bring the prosecution, we should, you know, we have the onus. It's not that, though. It's it's these old ideas that we cling on to based on, you know, the words that we use and the, the, the physical spaces that we adopt. And if we're truly wanting to make change, then we've got to re-examine and start afresh and think about it rather than just do it because we've done it that way for 100 years. And that is the weakest reason to continue to make error that I can see. 
Which is good. So the next time that somebody says to me, what do you, what do you want, Kirsty, after writing these stories about the justice system, and I say, well, we should get rid of it, I can be like, <laughs> Liz Hall agrees with me. She <laughs> wants to burn it all down too. Burn it all down. Look, it is broken. I think that's certainly it. And and like, you should listen to the Crying at Work podcast, and that will give you your answer about what we should do. I know I was talking to someone about coming on today, and I said, to be fair, I don't just cry at work. I also cry in the car. <laughs> I cry when I get home. I cry in the shower. <laughs> and I think admitting that is okay. That's part of what we want to talk about, right? Well, yeah, it doesn't that's what's interesting. Look. It's okay for me, mm. right? But I have cried in court twice, once in, a, once in, a, uh, in an interview room and once in the cells in 23 years, right? And... You don't talk about it. You don't. So, yeah. Because the law is like removing like humanness, right? That's when you go into the courtroom. It's like not supposed to be emotion, right? It's supposed to be just facts. Yeah, and that sense that if you're a woman and you're showing emotion that you're not now no longer objective, that you're now no longer you're professional. You're compromised. Yeah. 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 Do men cry too? Of course they do. Of course they do. Would they admit it to me? Probably not. But I know. But I know. <laughs> like you can't work in this space and not feel deeply. You just, mm. you can't. And it's about, um, you know, respecting the process of a trial and when that emotion. But, you know, there are times in courts when, you know, things that are being said are, you know, are deeply moving. And, you know, as a parent and, uh, you know, you 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 can't not be affected by it. I mean, we're not computers. We are humans. So, yeah. It's the same as our jobs as well, you know, trying to be. This idea of objectivity isn't isn't all it's cracked up to be, you know. I don't even think it's fit for purpose anymore, you know, this idea that you must somehow be untouched. Yeah, and even admitting, like when I was saying before about the way you think about, you know, things. Lots of reporters wouldn't do that. But it's like, it's trying to pretend you don't, you're not a product of like all the ideas from society is just kind of ridiculous at this point. I think it's better to acknowledge them and work around them. Who are you kidding otherwise? Yeah. I think that it's important though that if you acknowledge that you come from a certain perspective and you're upfront about that, then that's fine. I mean, like there are some, there are some, uh, commentators of opinion editorials that I just won't even read because I know that they only come from a certain perspective and it's not one that I subscribe to and so I'm not going to waste my time, you know, reading it. And so I I don't know how you, you know, define objectivity, but um, it's certainly a problem in criminal law, I think, with, you know, the trauma that you get exposed to and then the vicarious trauma. Like, there are things that have happened in court, and I've got back to chambers, and I've said, oh, my God, this thing happened today. And I won't say exactly what it is because I, I'm affected. I don't want to make somebody else affected, you know, by it. And, and you'll, you guys will be the same, right? You'll have experiences that you've had in your life, which you carry with you. that may not have happened to you, but you've heard about it, you've dealt with, and you still wake up at night and think about them. I mean, why would... You know, defence lawyers, prosecutors, judges, court staff, police, be any different? Why would we be any different? We're not. Mm. Do you have any cases that you still think about that you wake up in the middle of the night? Absolutely. Ongoing ones and historic ones. I think, um, you know, you asked me before about how you manage that. 
one of the things that you know lawyers do to manage it is you make sure you do everything you possibly can at the time to help the justice system get the right result. There is, um, and and the tension between that and you know taking a holiday or going to watch your kids play soccer, that's where the rubber hits the road, right? Because your phone is always on, your brain is always on, and you have the privilege of helping people at their lowest, at the biggest crisis that will probably ever happen to them in their entire lives. And if they get wrongfully convicted, you don't just pack up the file and walk off and think, oh, well, you know, next. It doesn't work like that. You know, you carry it with you. Um, so you have to do everything you possibly can. And that sometimes is going to make you deeply unpopular. And it sometimes is going to mean that you can't have, you know, convivial relationships with police and prosecutors. And that's okay because I'm not there to be their friend. I'm there to do my job to make sure that the justice system and the part that I play helps it be accurate. So, yeah, you, of course, you carry story, you carry people's, you know, histories with you. And equally from the flip side, I've had, you know, calls out of the blue with people who I've acted for who just want to reach out. And you were, a, you know, a, a part of something that was deeply traumatic for them. You know, you were a passenger in that experience for them. And so there are relationships that are built that stand the test of time. So that was Liz Hall, who's an experienced defence lawyer from Wellington, talking about her experience handling emotions professionally as a woman in court. I don't know about you guys, but I would really want her to be defending me if I ever ended up in a courtroom. Uh, What did you think about it, Noelle? Yeah, you can't imagine anyone better, can you? I was so moved listening to that by that mixture of sort of pragmatism and practicality and humanity that Liz brings to what I think would be an exceptionally demanding job. And it struck me how she said that it's only now, right, after decades of experience, that she actually feels confident and empowered enough to talk about the gender inequality, you know, to talk about how it's different for women expressing our emotions. And I reckon that speaks to your point earlier, Kirsty, doesn't it? That sort of oppressive and patriarchal nature of um, like of the court system, of the whole thing. It feels like it's particularly rigid, not just the standing up and the bowing to the judge, but I guess you'd know that more than me because you're studying it. Yeah, I I did study some of it and plan to do a bit more. Um, and I think what I noticed is how you know it is it is kind of like built up over time. So the whole way that um, common law works is is through cases. So it's like this thing happened and it builds on it, and that becomes a law. It's the law of precedent, and so. It's just like a very extreme example of how cultural social norms are embedded into a system over time. It's literally embedded into it in law, and then that's the that's what gets reflected back. But you know, it's only one it's only one reality that is kind of put in there. And so, exactly what Liz was saying, there's going to be there's going to be bias in there. And in this case, I think it was gender mm. gender bias. I was interested in what she said as well about being a lawyer. What did you think about that, Michelle? I thought that was really interesting because when she was talking about being judged 
uh, differently for, you know, defending rapists or people who have murdered their children and that kind of thing. I thought, oh, yeah, of course, you know, I, I would probably do that without even meaning to. Just, you know, when you see a, there's something just incongruous about a woman defending a rapist, you know, you think, oh, but shouldn't you sort of, you know, uh, understand what, what you know, that might be like? But yeah, that's or shouldn't also your loyalty just, be to the woman? Shouldn't yeah, your loyalty yeah. be to the victim? Is it like that? Yeah, but I'm. But then I'm already assuming first that they're guilty, which is, um, you know, obviously you shouldn't do that. But yeah, I am applying. It's a double standard. It shouldn't really be any different because both men and women, and any all genders have emotions. You know, so yeah, which I, is exactly I what like, Liz said. Yeah. Yeah, my own biases, sort of unchecked, you know, were coming through a little bit when she said that. I thought that was really interesting. And, yeah, it shouldn't be any different. It shouldn't be, I don't think. Like I said to Liz, burn it down. <laughs> was that weird for you, though, Kirsty? <laughs> like you said that with the Mrs. P case, that at a certain point you were like, oh, I've got my blinkers on and now I'm going to take them off and look at this in a totally different way. I'm going to assume that this woman who's being accused of lying is not lying. Oh, I think, yeah, I just realised. I was like, oh, my God. There's like just a certain way when you read a court judgment that I don't know what it is. You always assume that the judge has got it right for some reason, or I had, because it's like mm. that's what judges are. They're like, God, like <laughs> what did Liz say about the crown sitting at the front and being closer to God? That's honestly how it feels. And then... There was just this moment where I realized, oh my God, judges are human too and they can be flawed and like what? And and even though I'd read so many academic studies about, it, you know, bias in, in courts and things like that, I hadn't, it just like it hadn't kind of clicked with me and that was the moment and it just, it kind of terrified me basically. It was unpleasant. It was really unpleasant. Because you have to face, like Michelle was saying, you have to face all our own biases. When we recorded this interview, I don't know about the two of you, but I found that moment when Liz talked about the two times she'd cried, I found that very affecting. And I was trying to sort of reflect on that and think, why did I find it so affecting? And partly it was, you know, because of what she was sharing. But partly as well, I think sometimes, do you think that we as women in these systems, which sort of flatten difference and we have to fit into rather than the opposite way around, do you think sometimes we overcompensate? Like you two are journos and, you know, it's not a, it's not an industry that's famous for being sort of touchy feely and super you know like yeah. super sensitive do you feel and and you know my background's in broadcasting and you know there's this type of broadcaster who can be quite emotional but but as a young woman in broadcasting I knew instinctively it was not in my best interest to be doing interviews through veils of tears you know do you think that as women we are set up to sort of overcompensate sometimes or just always very aware of that yeah I definitely do think that as a journalist, when you first start out, I don't know what it's like now, but when I first started out trying to fit into a newsroom, you tried to do everything in a way that was like really sort of by the book and try to chase all these hard stories and write them in a particular way. And, you know, you didn't, you weren't, you had to be tough and you weren't affected by them and you'd, you know, pick anything up. Yeah, I think you kind of had to be more blokey than the blokes or something. Yeah, like you make, you know, um, kind of, off-colour, off-colour, she says, off-colour <laughs> jokes. Did you make off-colour jokes, Christy um, Johnston? You know, I find that very difficult to believe. You know, all the um, dark humour and that kind of stuff. It, yeah, and I think Which is a coping mechanism, actually. 
a lot of that is a coping mechanism like yeah for um all the horrific stuff you have to report on and say is to kind of in the drinking because otherwise you probably would cry yeah yeah which are quite i don't know it's all just yeah. part of existing in a system that's not built for you, which is what, you mm. know. And all of the messages we got to the tell me about it Instagram, you know, I was just really hoping, and I didn't hear this in any of the people who DM'd us, any of our listeners, but nobody said they felt ashamed or they felt bad for crying at work. And I hope that, you know, that that they don't feel like that because, you know, it's a normal human reaction sometimes. The best thing you can do is go and lock yourself in the toilet and have a cry. Like one person said to me that it was like a champagne cork being popped, you know, when she had a tangy at work because she was just over it. Yeah, and we had another woman who said that they had just normalised crying at their workplace. Yes. Like, <laughs> the work that they were doing, which was sort of like trying to... Um, uh, in systemic racism like not a small yeah quite a big task <laughs> it was really heavy and so mm. they all were just it was frustrating and they got angry and they cried and it was okay so I think that's great what about like screaming at work I mean like you know a good scream into a pillow or something it's probably also I think you need exciting. a policy you probably need a policy for that I mean it depends on where your pillow is if you're in your wardrobe which is where I think you are right at this very minute Kirsty <laughs> you're probably sweet think it's good for sound right <laughs> and for and for yelling and for rage just like sort of thrashing it out against the wall raging at work all right so what have we learned law is an imperfect system <laughs> let's burn it down <laughs> do you know i want to take one thing that liz said and i might just like put this somewhere like on the wall of my wardrobe or something she said that um she's been doing her job for so long. Like, she can talk about this now, like, she feels empowered because she's doing her job for so long, but also she doesn't care what people think about her. Yeah, I love that. And and that speaks to power. I bet she's over 50. Do we do we think she's over 50? I think you just hit 50 and you're like, bugger it. That's when you run it. What's, what did Caitlin Moran say? I've run out. I've run out of Fs to give. <laughs> like, I'm just, they're gone. They're gone. My bag is empty. The bag was full of them in my 20s and 30s and 40s fewer and now it's empty great are we not allowed to say the f word no i don't know did you see how i fudged it there i mean i did one of you can be the first to do that and take it to the editorial meeting i'm not i know i'm not dying on that hill michelle duff hey uh thanks so much to elizabeth hall for coming on and letting us ask you anything that popped into our heads about gender and work and crying we will be back next week with another episode. And remember that if you want to contact us with any episode ideas or feedback, you can email us at tellmeaotearoa at gmail.com or slide into our DMs on Instagram at tellmeaboutitnz. Awesome. They're open. We will see you next week. It's been a pleasure as ever. Matua. Bye. Tell Me About It is made for stuff by Bird of Paradise Productions. It was produced by me, Noelle McCarthy, and written by me, Kirsty Johnston, and Michelle Duff. Our script supervisor is Eugene Bingham, and thanks to Janine Fenwick and Eugene for editorial oversight. Mixed by Mark Chesterman. And our theme tune is Queenie Queenie by Tammy Nielsen, our queen. You can like the podcast and leave a review on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell Me About It is made possible by funding from New Zealand On Air. Queenie, Queenie, don't drop the ball. Queenie, Queenie, don't drop the ball. Queenie, Queenie, don't drop the ball. Down, come baby.
cradling off. 